0: The following is a message by Librarian John Bales from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Our text today is found in Galatians 3.19, and I'm going to be reading through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Here ends the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give me your wisdom and your knowledge that I might teach your word in all its purity. Prepare our hearts to receive it, to understand it, to preserve it. Inscribe your law as you have promised upon the tablets of our hearts, and give us the desire and the strength to walk in your precepts, to the praise and glory of your name and the edification of your church, through Christ we pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, before we begin looking at the text, I just have two comments by way of introduction. First of all, I know that some of you are thinking it's towards the end of the semester and this is the last assigned text of Galatians for this particular semester and that it's been assigned to me. So some of you are thinking that Dr. Kim purposely gave me a text that is more insignificant than the other texts in Galatians. And I just want to assure you that that's not the case. Some of you are thinking that we've already heard the main text from chapter 2 when Dr. Fesco spoke and that message was so clear that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So some of you are thinking, well, we've gotten to the meat of the text and now it's on the downside of the hill. Some of you are thinking this is just an excursus of Paul that he's gotten off the main argument, and so therefore we're going to assign this text to Bales. (laughs) But that's not the case. I don't want you to believe that today. We're still in the main crux of the argument here. We're going to find that Paul is still dealing with this major issue of Judaizers in Galatia who are trying to insist on obedience to the law in, uh, in addition to faith in Jesus Christ. So some of you have come here thinking that yes, the dogs do get to eat the crumbs of the children underneath the table, uh, but that's not the case. So put that aside, we're dealing with something significant here today. And secondly, by way of introduction, I just want to remind you as we sang that hymn that there are many purposes of God's law. Today we're going to be looking specifically at a couple of them. But even Calvin wanted to remind us in his commentary on Galatians that there is another purpose of the law. And he writes, The law has many uses, but Paul confines himself to one which serves his present purpose. He did not propose to inquire in how many ways the law is of advantage to men. Readers must put on their guard on this matter, for I see many make the mistake of acknowledging no other use of the law than what is expressed here. But elsewhere, Paul himself applies the precepts of the law to teaching and exhortation. Therefore, this definition of the use of the law is not complete, and those who acknowledge nothing else in the law are wrong. So Calvin was trying to remind us that there is another use of the law. It's a good use uh, for for advantages for us. But we're not going to be addressing that today. What we are going to be addressing, though, is Paul saying, why then the law? What's the purpose of the law? And we're going to find two particular answers today in the text. They're both stated in the same verses, verses 19 and 22. So the first answer is given 19, that the law was given to... uh, Added because of transgressions. Or as he says in verse 22, the law was uh, consigned, consigned all things to sin or imprisoned all things, everything under sin. That's the first purpose of the law. It has to do with increasing transgressions. The second purpose of the law is also dealt with in verses 19 and 22. Verse 22 that what was promised to faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And he says basically the same thing in verse 19. Till the offspring should come to those to whom the promise had been given. So we have two purposes here. One is that sin, or that the law reveals sin. And then secondly, it points us to the promise. So let's unpack that just a little bit at this point. First, verse 19, the law was added because of transgressions. Now, does that mean that the law actually produces transgressions within us, or rather that it punishes them? Most commentators actually believe that it produces sin, and a parallel verse that's very helpful is Romans 5.20. There, Paul makes the meaning very clear, law came in to increase trespass. And I think that's true in two different ways. First of all, the law uh, brings wrath, as it says in Romans 4.15, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. So when Paul says in Galatians 3.19 here that the law was added because of transgressions, and and in 5.20 of Romans he says it came to increase trespass, he means, first of all, that the law functions like a standard to us. It's a, it's a measuring stick that's held up to our lives and says, look at where you are. Look at who you are. In fact, it was uh, Olivianus who compared the law to a mirror, and he says, just hold up the law to you and look at it. It's like a mirror. It tells you who you are. It tells you where you are in life. And so by doing that, we're reminded of, of our fallenness, of our transgressions. An example that came to my mind was something that happened to me when I was about 10 years old. My father at the time was working for law enforcement in the state of North Dakota, which is, by the way, one of the 50 states. And he was not a highway patrolman, but he worked with them. And so he had in his car, in our family car, a state radio. And one time we were driving out in the middle of nowhere, which could be anywhere in the state. And we happened upon a car where there was a man weaving. He was definitely drunk. And my father quickly got on the radio, and he called a highway patrolman in. And within minutes, the highway patrolman came and pulled that man over. We pulled over right behind uh, It was kind of interesting because the man thought we were actually being nice by pulling in. In fact, uh, my father had called the police on him. <laughs> but uh, in that instance, then the highway patrolman gave a sobriety test. He arrested the man. The man even became even more indignant, was abusive, and uh, to me that was a reminder of where there is no law, people act like they can do whatever they want. They can commit all kinds of crimes and sins. They might think, no one knows who's going to catch me. I can do whatever I want. But when the law came, that person became convicted of doing something wrong. They were arrested, and hopefully they were imprisoned. But it caused an increase as well of belligerence among that person. And so the law functioned in two ways. The first way to show there was sin in the first place, but secondly, to show an increase of sin. In other words, the man when he was arrested had not only, was not only driving drunk, but he became belligerent. <laughs> and abusive with the highway patrolman. And that's exactly the second sense of, of what Paul means here when he says that the law was given to add transgressions. Uh, as it says in Romans 5.20 again, the law came in to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So within us there is a rebellion, an insubordination that takes place when The law comes into our lives, where we become aware of the law. It arouses sin. One commentator, uh, Cranfield, said this about the way our hearts deal with the law. He says, it seeks all the more furiously to defend itself. When we're accused of something, we seek all the more to defend ourselves. And we become even more belligerent and hardened in our hearts. Another illustration of this is found in Romans 7.13 where Paul says did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin working death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So this is the second sense in which The law increases transgression among us. It manifests sin in our lives and it magnifies sin in our lives. And so we read again verses 21 and 22. Is the law then against the promise of God? He says, certainly not. Certainly not for if a law had been given which could make alive, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But scripture has consigned or imprisoned everything under sin. So that leads us to ask the question, well then, is the law really contrary to the covenant? Is it contrary to the promise? Is it contrary to God's purposes? And Paul's answer is no, not at all. Even though it was given 430 years after the promise to Abraham, it does not annul, it does not alter the covenant promise. It does not contradict God's ways. It actually complements God's purposes. It has a purpose. As I was thinking of this, I've been reading lately uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and I was reminded of Christian's response when Mr. Worldly Wise Man told him, hey, you want the way of salvation? Go up yonder high hill. Go ahead and climb that, and, and on your way, why don't you go and see Mr. Legality? That's the way to go. And so Christian begins to walk up that hill and he said it felt like the hill was going to fall on his head. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? That the burden of the law felt so much upon him that he felt like that hill was going to fall on his head and he just stood still and he didn't know what to do. And he said his burden now seemed heavier to him than while he was on his way. That's the burden of the law upon us. It manifests sin in our lives and then it magnifies it even more, it increases it, and it becomes such a heavy burden. And even though Paul says the law does not contradict the promise, it is so burdensome that we cannot ever attain it. Why is the law then so powerless to help us? God gave it as a gift it's a part of his covenant with his people. Why couldn't the law make people come alive? The answer is found again in Romans. In this case, now I know you're thinking I'm talking about Romans today, but I am actually talking about Galatians. But Romans 8, 3 and 4 says, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Galatians 3.21 Uh, is a reminder of this sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit both Galatians 3 and Romans 8 say there is something that the law cannot do it cannot give life it does not make us come alive Romans 8.3 says the law was weak through the flesh. Why is it then that the law could not give power to God's people? Because the recipients of the law are ruled by the flesh. We are devoid of the Holy Spirit apart from God's gracious activity in our lives. Why couldn't the law make people come alive? Because they were ruled by the flesh and without the work of the Holy Spirit. Why did God use the law then to shut people up under sin? Because they were ruled by the flesh. The law kept people in sin and did not give them life because it was not accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 23 and 24 now. Before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under constraint or restraint until faith should be revealed so that the law was our custodian until Christ came. Now, the word here, custodian, is sometimes translated as tutor or schoolmaster, and there's different commentators who have different views on this, but by and large, a Custodian was someone who was a servant probably within a family responsible to raise the son from early childhood all the way to entrance upon manhood. The law had that particular function for Israel. Kind of reminded me again of a story that happened to me when I was about the same age when, when I was driving with my father in that car. But this time... I was uh, at a Christmas play. I was in third grade, and uh, the Christmas play was taking place. I was sitting with my friends, and the fifth graders were up on the stage. I was a third grader. And when the fifth grade boys came up in their green leotards, I had a great laugh. And I was poking my friends and saying, look at how foolish those guys look. Look at so-and-so. Look at so-and-so. I can't believe they have to wear leotards. Well, what I didn't realize was that our principal, Mr. Ritter, was standing right behind me. And he grabbed me, and this is stern and harsh, Mr. Ritter. This is in the days when people, I mean, when teachers still could whack you upside the head. And he grabbed me, and he pulled me aside, and he told me not to do that again, not to act so childish. That someday I would probably be up there with green leotards as well. <laughs> I didn't like Mr. Ritter. But that's how, Paul says, the law functioned for Israel. It was like a custodian. My parents weren't present at that particular play. But Mr. Ritter functioned like a custodian, grabbing me and saying, I was acting inappropriately. I was acting like a child. I needed to grow up. That's the way the law was to Israel. It was like, again, holding up a mirror to them, saying, look how childish you are. Look at how immature you are. Grow up. Well, the problem, again, is that, by and large, Israel's response and our response to the law is that we are adolescent. We don't grow up. The law doesn't make us grow up without the work of the Holy Spirit. We live in rebellion against God. A custodian can watch us, can tell us what to do and not to do, but the custodian cannot change our hearts Just like a law enforcement official cannot change the hearts of those who commit crimes. The law points fingers. It condemns. But it doesn't change our hearts. Well, praise God, something has happened. And Paul describes that. Faith has now come. Verse 25. We're no longer under a custodian. We no longer have Mr. Ritter looking over our shoulder any longer Grabbing us and telling us how stupid we are. Faith has come. Does that mean that there weren't people of faith in the Old Testament? Of course not. We all know earlier in Galatians chapter 3, Paul has pointed out that Abraham was a man of faith. He was justified by faith. We all know from Hebrews chapter 11, there's a whole list of people that are described as faithful people in the Old Testament. So faith has come does not mean there were people in the Old Testament who did not have faith. But faith has means that in the grand scheme of things, in the grand plan of God's redemptive history, God has begun to pour out his Holy Spirit in accompaniment with the gospel so that more and more people are being saved. The preaching of the gospel is being accompanied by a powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And so people from a nation are hearing the gospel and responding in greater numbers than before because the Holy Spirit has been poured out in our hearts. Faith has come means God is fulfilling his promises to give new hearts, not hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh. And every one of us here who lives by faith in the Son of God is a living evidence of God's sovereign work, his effectual work of grace and Holy Spirit in our lives. Well, we can see also finally here some of the benefits of the fact that God's spirit has now been poured out and that faith has come. The first is listed in verse 24, which is something obviously that Paul has already dealt with, justification. Verse 24, So then the law was our guardian under, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. We are declared innocent of all our sins because they've been forgiven because of Christ's work for us. And then in verse 26, and notice the order justification first, then in verse 26, we are now sons of God through faith. So we become children of God and we receive the promises and the inheritance promised Abraham. So you and I now have the wonderful blessing of being declared justified and being declared God's children. And along with that, all of the wonderful blessings that go with it. We are no longer under a custodian, the law. We are no longer oppressed by that law. We no longer have Mr. Ritter pointing fingers at us and grabbing us and we're looking constantly at, did I do something wrong? Did I do something wrong? Am I gonna be nabbed? Am I gonna be smacked upside the head? We no longer have that relationship to the law. We are not under it anymore, desperately trying like Christian, in Pilgrim's Progress, trying to climb High Hill to go see Mr. Legality. What are the lessons then for us in this text? I'm just gonna mention a couple. First of all, the law was given for a purpose, a fundamental purpose in God's plan and his economy to help us to see ourselves, to hold up a mirror to us, to see not only the failures of Israel, But our own failures. He wants us to see the exceeding sinfulness of our own sin, the depth of pride that we have, and how sin manifests itself within us. I like what John Stott had to say about the purpose of the law it's a good purpose, God gave it for a reason. And he said, This, not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell. Will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven? There is a purpose for the law. It brings us to Christ, and that's the second lesson that we gain from this text. We are to cherish Jesus Christ and his work for us. We are to turn to him every step of the way, not just once in our life to turn our life over to him, but every day to turn to him in humility and lowliness, and gratitude and to let our hearts be filled with his Holy Spirit, who alone is able to inscribe his law upon our hearts. I'm filled with John Bunyan today, so I'm going to close with a quote that's often attributed to him, but I can't find the source. He writes, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Turn to the gospel again this morning, my friends, and find the free grace and Holy Spirit that's available to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this brief time in this day that you've given to us to once again look to your word and to ask for your help. We are sinners through and through. We know that your law has shown us who we are, what we've done. We can't hide it. We wouldn't even want to try to. So thank you for your law. Thank you for that law leading us to Christ. And I pray that each one of us now would again turn to you in confession and repentance and seeking your constant grace. Father, send your Holy Spirit upon us and renew our hearts. Inscribe that law upon our hearts